0: Now's the time to have the bull at your back with Merrill. Learn more at Merrill slash bullish. Investing involves risk. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner and Smith, Incorporated, Registered Broker Dealer, Registered Investment Advisor, Member SIPC. I'm Ed Baxter. Denise Pellegrini has a week off. Welcome
1: to Bloomberg Wealth with David Rubenstein part of our Best of Bloomberg series. In this episode, we hear from Nicole Musico. She's the chief investment officer of the California Public Employees Retirement System, better known as CalPERS. They talk inflation, investment ideas, and artificial intelligence. David starts by asking Nicole to describe her organization.
2: Well, CalPERS is the US's largest pension plan. It stands for the California Public Employee Retirement System. And so we invest the pension money of two million members across the uh, California. And we often say it's we serve the people who serve California.
0: Okay, so there are two million people who are members of CalPERS now. These are people who have been employees of the California State uh, uh, Employment System or they are um, currently employees?
2: It's a mix of both. So we have around 775,000, don't quote me on that number, but pretty close to that, of. Uh, retirees, and we have just over 800,000 active members.
0: Okay, so if you work for the California state government, uh, you don't get Social Security, you get this, is that right, or you get both?
2: You get both.
0: Or you get your Social Security, and you get the retirement system benefits of CalPERS.
2: Correct, and you also get health benefits. So in 1932, CalPERS was formed uh, through the legislature, and then in 1962, CalPERS was then given permission, again, through the legislature to issue health insurance.
0: Okay, so let's suppose you work for a California state government Mm -hmm. entity for 25 years, you retire, Mm -hmm. Uh, what do you get as your benefit from CalPERS? You get a certain percentage of your salary or do you get whatever you can get them in good rates of return
2: it's a it's a mixture of years of service and then there's a formula years of service times a certain percentage depending on which of the groups which of the members you are a part of but essentially it is a very um, it's a it's a very healthy pension to allow you to have uh, retirement with dignity is what we like to think
0: The average person who works at CalPERS, at what age do they retire?
2: You can retire, I believe, as early as 52 for some of the members who were members prior to, I think it was 2016, and 55 uh, thereafter.
0: And CalPERS is the nation's biggest uh, state pension fund, is that correct? It is, correct. How big is it?
2: We are at around $465 billion today.
0: $465 billion.
2: Correct.
0: Now your job is to oversee the investment of $465 billion. Yes, it is. Do you actually have the money you need to service the obligations you have? Because many of the state pension funds are not really sufficiently, uh, um, I would say, uh, capitalized at this point.
2: We're still in around the 72, 73 percent funded status. It depends. You know, we we obviously keep track of this all the time. I think we hit a a peak of 80% pre-COVID. We're down to around 72% funded. But again, we think through you know, through the next 20 years, and that's why we have our 6.8% target so that we can be fully funded in the 20-year
1: period. So
0: fully funded means that every dollar you owe somebody, theoretically, you have a dollar to cover them, but no pension fund or very few in the United States actually are fully funded?
2: Very few in the United States. In Canada, it is different. They are mainly fully funded in Canada.
0: Let's talk about Canada because it's a country you know pretty well. So where were you born?
2: I was born in Toronto and uh, I grew up in southwestern Ontario predominantly.
0: And when you were growing up in Toronto, did you say, I want to run CalPERS someday?
2: No, (laughs) I did not. I think from the time I was two or three, my mom said I wanted to be a doctor. And so when I went into university, I went in and studied kinesiology, thinking I was going to do sports medicine in my third year thinking I still wanted to do medicine. I had an anatomy course and I had my own cadaver for the year. And let's just leave it as once I had to work with a cadaver, I quickly realized I was not cut out for working on broken bones or medicine. And so I pivoted.
0: All right, so you went to undergraduate business school. And you got a degree, at, does that take a one or two years?
2: That was a two year program. So I ended up spending six years in undergrad.
0: You got two degrees. Mm-hmm. So when you have your, your business degree, what did you decide to do then?
2: My first job out of undergrad was working. Well, it was then Solomon Smith Barney, and then Citigroup. By the time I left,
0: did you ever, you know, say I want to stay here and become CEO or something like that?
2: I actually really enjoyed um, the experience working in investment banking. I had a summer job prior to my investment banking role where I worked on a trading floor at Ontario Teachers, and they, and where I ended up um, being later employed. And I'll come back to that. But they had this really neat rotation program where we got a peek into, a glimpse into what the different groups are, or the different asset classes. And that was my first introduction to private equity. And so I enjoyed investment banking, but having you know the opportunity to see what private equity was about, I really set my sights on getting into private equity after grad school. Okay.
0: So living then, you were living in New York when you were doing this for Salinas? I and lived White? in
2: Toronto and New York. I did a stint in both places. And
0: So you had enough of New York, you moved back to Canada?
2: I did. I moved back to Canada to get my MBA, and once I graduated from Western's MBA program, that's when I joined Ontario Teachers.
0: Okay, so Ontario Teachers is another big pension fund, and based in the Toronto, Ontario area, Correct. and and, uh, represents all the teachers, presumably. Mm -hmm. So, what area did you specialize in?
2: I went right into the private equity group and spent 15 years on the private equity side, and then I ran the public equity side of Ontario Teachers. I spent, uh, within that period of time, I spent a year and a half, two years in Hong Kong. I opened the Asia office. Ontario teachers and then came back to Toronto to run public equities. In
0: the investment world nobody spends 15 years at anything so I know. <laughs> you must have really loved the job.
2: I did. So I was hired onto the direct investing team and right out of the gate uh, we set out to really create a direct investing program and that's now, kind of what's referred to as the Canadian model now.
0: For those who aren't familiar with Ontario teachers it was a leader in actually doing deals directly Correct. and so Unfortunately, you're saying the private equity people, we can do the same thing you do. We don't need you, we'll do it ourselves. Was that nice to the private equity people to show them that you could do the same thing?
2: You know, philosophically, we we didn't go that far. We basically said, we wanna do direct investments, but we wanna have a smart friend beside us. And so most of the deals, and certainly the best performing deals, when we went, went and did kind of a look back after 10 years, were really with our GP friends. And so while we may not be paying a, a fee and carry on the direct deal itself, we often had another smart friend at the table.
0: Okay, so after 15 years of that, you said, I want to be on the other side. I want to actually be a private equity investor in a private equity firm, is that right?
2: Yes, that is, yeah.
0: And what firm did you join?
2: Redbird Capital Partners.
0: Now, Redbird was started by Jerry Cardinal, who uh, was a former Goldman partner. That's right. And it specializes, I think, in entertainment, sports, media, among other things. Correct. All right, so why, after two years, did you decide to leave?
2: Well, I just, I got this call, and the call was about the opportunity to come and be the chief investment officer of the U.S.'s largest pension plan. And to be honest, at first I thought, well, that sounds like a crazy idea. Why would I do that? And I said, you know, This is a really cool opportunity for me to be able to kind of take my personality and the 16 years of experience I had had in the Canadian pension system and really try to apply those tools to the US system to really make a difference.
0: But in the private equity world, you can make, you get a carried interest, you get nice compensation.
2: Generally, people (laughs) go
0: from the the, uh, public pension fund world to the private equity world. They don't go back because sometimes the compensation is less.
2: Oh, it's definitely less. (laughs) Why did you want to
0: take less compensation? Is it that you like California that much, you wanted to help California, or you just thought it was just a big platform?
2: I just thought where I am in my career, I'm still in my 40s, I have lots of time to get back into private equity, which I'm sure ultimately that's where I'll I'll go back to. But I thought to be able to commit, I said to the board up to five years of my time to really try to transform U.S. pension felt like a very, you know, intellectually challenging and a, a good thing to do with the tools that I have.
0: So, um, the United States has a lot of very talented investment professionals. Why do you think they needed to go to Canada to get somebody to run the pension fund of CalPERS? Did anybody ever say to you, hey, you know, you're a Canadian and we're an American fund, or nobody that? What cared do you know about, about
2: that? <laughs> yeah. No, I think people do care. I think the, um, the attraction to the Canadian system was the fact that I had, within the Canadian system, so much private market experience. And if you think about where CalPERS is or was um, specifically, private markets was still not, is still not, a huge part of our strategic asset allocation. And so what I really brought was a bit of a different angle where I could really bolster the private market investing.
0: So when you go to a cocktail party and say you're the chief investment officer of CalPERS, what's the normal reaction?
2: (laughs) Are you crazy? (laughs)
0: today, CalPERS um, tries to get what kind of rate of return? In other words, it's obviously a difficult investment environment, but you've got $400 plus billion plus to invest. What kind of rate of return are you trying to get overall on that amount of money?
2: So we look at a 20-year rate of return of 6.8%. So that is our current target. And I'd say over the last 20 years, we've been able to hit that. The last 10 years, we've also been able to exceed that. In the last five years, we're just below the 68 But over 20 years, as long-term patient investors, we're targeting a 6.8% return.
0: So, if you have this much money as you have, this staggering amount of money, why not just buy U.S. Treasury bills with long durations? You'll get a 5% yield and just isn't 5% enough?
2: It's not. Oh, Unfortunately, it's... it's not. We really do need to hit close to that 7% to to stay funded and to be able to meet our commitments.
1: That's CalPERS CIO Nicole Musico on Bloomberg Wealth with David Rubenstein. Coming up, the conversation continues with a look at how inflation is having an impact on investments. You're listening to Bloomberg Wealth with David Rubenstein, part of our Best of Bloomberg series. I'm Ed Baxter, and this is Bloomberg. Bloomberg. I'm Ed Baxter. Denise Pellegrini has the week off. You're listening to Bloomberg Wealth with David Rubenstein, part of our Best of Bloomberg series. In this episode, we're hearing from Nicole Musico. She's the chief investment officer of California Public Employees Retirement System, better known as CalPERS. We've heard how she got her start in investing. Now, here David asks about the principles that inform her investment decisions.
0: Today, we've obviously had inflation that's pretty high in the United States for the last couple of years. Obviously, had it in Canada as well and around the Western world. Um, Does that make it harder to invest and get the rate of return you want if inflation is relatively high?
2: Sure, it does. I mean, it's obvious inflation is having an impact across the portfolio. Um, We have to be mindful of what the knock-on effects are going to be within the different asset classes, for example. And so it's fair to say right now, we're thinking a little bit harder and a little differently maybe about infrastructure as an asset class, for example, because of the inflation protection uh, that, it, that it can provide. And so inflation absolutely has an impact on our portfolio, as does the interest rate environment, which has clearly changed the cost of capital across
0: all the well, asset let's classes. Let's talk about the interest rate environment. <laughs> sure. Do you sit there in Sacramento and say, well, interest rates are going to go up again? Do you try to make projections of what the Fed's going to do in advance, or do you wait till they make the decision and then you react to it?
2: We really try to have discipline around being long-term investors and think about our strategic asset allocation as our North Star. And so, rather than trying to time the market, we're certainly mindful, and we think about where interest rates are, but we're not trying to time the market.
0: So the United States has had some challenges recently, high inflation, so forth, high interest rates, but what about outside the United States? Does CalPERS invest outside the United States? And if it does, is that controversial? Because your employees are all in California are they saying ever, look, let's invest our money in our country. Do they ever say that? And if not, and you're allowed to invest outside, what areas do you like outside our countries?
2: So we we do invest outside of the US, but we are close to eighty percent invested in the US. So I'll start with that. We do have investment in California and we track that. We um, you know, we make sure we really understand where we're putting the capital work in California, but even on a relative basis, that's quite small, probably about 10% of our portfolio. We have certain areas where we are really getting pushback on investing right now, and China would be one of those areas, and so we've got less than 3% invested in China. Um, Areas like some some of the emerging markets we're starting to think more about, we probably have about an 11% exposure to emerging markets, and we're pretty, we're a bit hesitant on Europe right now. We're, we're kind of holding back on putting more capital to work in Europe. But do
0: you get political pressure to not invest in China? We do. And the money you've already got there, are you going to try to take it out right away or just say, look, it's it would be foolhardy to take it out right away. It'll come out when it comes out.
2: We're being mindful about our exposure in China right now so that we can avoid having any big losses if we were to be told overnight to divest of China.
0: So in the large endowment world that you're in, the pension fund world, There are two ways of doing things, I guess. One is you bring all the investment professionals in-house, you buy the stocks yourself, you do the deals yourself as you did at Ontario Teachers to some extent, or you outsource it, you have money managers doing most of that. And what is the style that you use at CalPERS?
2: It varies across the asset classes. Our fixed income program is predominantly in-house. Some of our, we don't have fundamental portfolio managers, but some of the um, execution is done in-house on the public equity side. On the private market side, it's generally all managers. Private equity, infrastructure, real estate. We're partnering with general partners, GPs, to invest on our behalf.
0: Recent years, uh, there's been a big concern about ESG. Uh, ESG is kind of a, a acronym for worrying about environmental and social and governance issues. Uh, what is your view on ESG? Are, are you uh, the school that says it's been uh, oversold, it's not as important as it should be, or you think it's not getting enough attention?
2: We have spent a great deal of time trying to really move, move the needle on climate solutions we kind of think of uh, we think of ESG in two different ways. ESG as a framework for investing, so almost think about it through the, the risk lens, and ESG through the investing lens and trying to think about how can we invest more sustainably, whether that's into more diverse managers, as the example I used, or into climate solutions, for example.
0: So there's been a backlash against ESG in some circles, political and other circles. Do you feel that backlash at CalPERS or you're not worried about the backlash against ESG?
2: We think about it all the time. I mean, we have different pressures. So we're really trying to keep the politics of ESG out of our boardroom and out of our investment decision making. And we really believe in engagement. We think if we have a voice at the table that we can be a lot more uh, productive in helping the overall climate problem rather than just focusing on our own portfolio. Are
0: you worried uh, about real estate in the United States? You're a gigantic real estate investor. and real estate in office buildings in big big cities like Sacramento, Los Angeles, New York, um, they have some truggles, struggles because people are not coming to the office that much, and therefore the landlords are probably not going to have tenants renew with the same amount of space that they uh, once leased. What do you think about that concern?
2: Yeah, I think you know real estate is a very broad broad space to invest in. And so there's multiple, multiple sectors within real estate. And so certainly the office space sector that you're referring to is one that we've been really, you know, digging into to see what our exposure is. We're very well diversified across a number of different uh, sectors within real estate, but certainly within um, office buildings, if they're not the the class A office buildings, there probably is going to be some real pain to be felt still as we're starting to adjust to where interest rates are.
0: Let's talk about AI for a moment. There are two aspects of it I'd like to ask you about. One is, as an area in which to invest, there seems to be a gold rush into AI. Everybody thinks AI is changing life as we know it. Uh, Do you think there are great investment opportunities there, or is it too early to know?
2: For a large pension like us that doesn't have the in-house deep expertise, it's too early for us to know specifically. We're taking a different path. We're doing a whole refresh on our own technology system, and we're bringing in outside help to help us make sure we're set up to succeed in a world that is going to be absolutely touched by AI. So our investment systems, um, all the technology that our investing program uh, resides on, we're taking a look at.
0: You've been a woman in the investment world for quite some time. Do you feel that it's getting better to be a woman, easier than it was when you first started, or do you think it's still challenging to be a woman and rise up as you have in uh, the investment world?
2: I think the area that I'm most focused on right now is, is educating young women about what the industry is and the possibilities. There's so much breadth, there's so many Um, opportunities, uh, whether you're talking about working in a pension plan like I started my career or working as a GP and everything in between. And so I think there's been a real push uh, and I've seen great momentum in educating young women to come up into the organizations. There's always gonna be a bit of a glut in the middle of um, one's career, if you're thinking about women that go through perhaps having a family, et cetera. And so when we look at our own diversity numbers, we, we always see, unfortunately, a bit of a glut in that middle career part, but we're also starting to see more and more women coming back into the industry and programs being set up to entice and, and welcome women back into uh, the industry. And therefore, we're seeing more and more leadership. Do
0: you have any hobbies? Do you have any, uh things you're really passionate about outside work?
2: My son and I have become avid Sacramento Kings fans, for example, we were season's ticket holders and didn't miss a game. Well, didn't miss many games anyway, this past season. But outside, I mean, California, living in Sacramento, we have access to Lake Tahoe, we love to ski, I love cycling, I love running. And so it's a wonderful place to live if you like outdoor adventures.
0: Would you recommend uh, this job to somebody in the future? Let's you're gonna do it for X number of years, but you think this is a good job to be the Chief Investment Officer of CalPERS?
2: I think if you're a mission-driven investor, there's really no better feeling than knowing you're impacting the lives of two million people that are serving California. I mean, if you think about the constituents that are benefiting from what we do every day as a team, it's a very rewarding job.
0: What is the best investment advice you ever received?
2: I guess just not to try to time the market, to be be a patient investor that has a a well-diversified portfolio.
1: That's CalPERS CIO Nicole Musico on Bloomberg Wealth with David Rubenstein. Coming up, we stay in California, but move over to Silicon Valley and a conversation between Bloomberg's Emily Chang and Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella. You're listening to Bloomberg Wealth with David Rubenstein, part of our Best of Bloomberg series. I'm Ed Baxter, and this is Bloomberg. I'm Ed Baxter, and this is Bloomberg Best. Denise Pellegrini has the week off. We turn now to artificial intelligence. Bloomberg's Emily Chang has a show called The Circuit. It's a Bloomberg original series that goes behind the scenes with founders, influencers, and innovators. In the latest episode, Emily sits down with Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella, The conversation starts with Microsoft's work in the AI space.
3: Microsoft has been working on AI for decades. And chatbots actually aren't anything new. But all of a sudden, everyone is salivating. Why do you think the moment for AI is
2: now?
4: AI has been here. In fact, it's mainstream, right? I mean, search is an AI product, even the current generation of search. Every news aggregation, recommendation, and you know, YouTube or e-commerce or TikTok or all AI products, Uh, except they're all, I would say today's generation of AI is all autopilot. In fact, it's a black box that we just sort of use that is dictating, in fact, how our attention is focused. Mm -hmm. Whereas going forward, the thing that's most exciting about this generation of AI is perhaps we move from autopilot to co-pilot, where mm-hmm. we actually prompt it. I think this this shift from autopilot to co-pilot is actually, yes, the next phase of AI, which in fact is perhaps going to put us as humans you know, more in the center of using AI to our benefit.
3: How transformative a change do you think this will be in how we work?
4: I think that probably the biggest difference maker will be business chat, because mm. If you think about the most important database in any company is the database underneath all of your productivity mm-hmm. software. Except that data is all siloed today. Mm-hmm. But now I can query it with natural. I can say, oh, I'm going to meet this customer. Can you tell me the last time I met them? Can you bring up all the documents that are written up about this customer and summarize it so that I'm current on what I need to be prepped for?
3: How do you make sure it's not clippy 2.0? That it is <laughs> Helpful, delightful, doesn't wanna make me click out ASAP.
4: <laughs> there are two sets of things. One is, you know. You're laughing because. Because look, they're, they're, we're, we're, like our industry is full of lots of, you know, examples from Clippy to even let's like, say, current generation of these assistants and so on. They all are brittle. I think we are also going to have to learn that ultimately these are tools. Just like anytime somebody <laughs> sends me a draft, I review the draft, I just don't accept the draft. <laughs> Uh, and so that ability to work with this co-pilot, give it feedback, know how to verify it. It's like literally like inspecting somebody's homework, right? Which is, hey, tell me exactly how you did this and so that I can verify. Those are the kinds of things that we'll learn.
3: You're trying to reinvent search with this AI-powered Bing, and I believe it's been using GPT-4 for a while now. What's worked? What hasn't?
4: One thing that we are learning is the search context, right? So conversational search is a thing. Yeah. So this grounding of your conversation with search data, I think is one mode. Mm-hmm. And then there is a completely different mode that we are also learned, which is people just want to chat. So we are now getting good at even the product design so that we make that an explicit choice. So for example, when we launched Bing, we didn't have these three modes we mm-hmm. now have. How precise do you want it to be, or how creative you want to be, or you want to be balanced. Uh, that, I think, is one of the biggest learnings. We learned is that, oh wow, people do, in fact, want to engage even in what is chat inside of search in different ways, and we got to put the user control back.
3: How much market share do you think you can really take from Google? Like, what's your <laughs> prediction? Give me a. Give Look, me your we, gut. We,
4: are thrilled to be in search we're a very small player in search and i look forward to every inch we gain is a big gain
3: you're coming for search they're coming for office they're now putting ai in there you know google docs and sheets and gmail are we just going to see you and sundar trying to one-up each other every week in this race to ai (laughs) greatness
4: you know i just want Bard and in being both to thrive. I just want Google Workspace and Microsoft 365 both to thrive. I mean, look at the end of the day, the fun part of being in this industry and competing is the innovation and competition is the last time I checked a fantastic thing for users and the industry. And so, yeah, I think you know Google's going to do. Uh, you know, it's a very innovative company, and uh, and we have a lot of respect for them. And I expect us to compete in multiple categories.
3: In my a decade plus covering Microsoft. I can't remember you releasing this much in quick succession. Why is it all happening so fast?
4: Yeah, it's, you know, it's sort of sometimes it feels it's all happening fast. It's, we we started working on this you know, a good four years ago, right? I mean, in some sense, if you think about when OpenAI and Microsoft came together and said, hey, this next generation of large language models uh, need new infrastructure. Let's build the infrastructure, tune the infrastructure. Let's understand even what AI safety and alignment looks like for these. What are the use cases? And this has been four years plus in making. Yeah. So, yes, it feels that we launched a lot of things just in a hurry this year but it's been four years in the making and obviously it's a it's a great partnership with open ai
3: microsoft reportedly laid off a team focused on ethical and responsible ai meantime you've got the center for humane technology calling the race to ai a race to recklessness how do you respond to that
4: in terms of impact on anybody at Microsoft, this is just probably the thing that weighs on me heavily because after all, any restructuring is hard, hard on the people who are most impacted. That said, two things. One is, this is no longer a side thing for Microsoft, right? Because in some sense, whether it's design, whether it's alignment, safety, ethics, it's kind of like saying quality, performance, and design, core design. So, I can't have now an AI team on the side. It's all being mainstream. So, in some sense, the hard process of companies like ours are going to constantly go through a lot of change. And then I think if anything debate dialogue and scrutiny on what is the space of innovation is it really creating benefits for society i think are absolutely and for i'll welcome it right i look yeah. at it and say no one can run faster than the benefits to the broader society and then the norms that we enforce as a democratic society on any technology. And so I feel like we're at the very early stages of it. So I would ask us to be open to it, but at the same time scrutinize it uh, and let's have a dialogue on what the benefits are. And in that context, let's also recognize, especially with this AI, why were we not asking ourselves, like the AI that's already in our lives, and how, what is it doing? Mm-hmm. It's like We've gone straight to saying, oh wow, these LLNs have some hallucination, guess what? Right. There's a lot of AI that I don't even know what it's doing mm-hmm. and except I'm happily clicking away <laughs> and accepting the recommendations. So why don't we, in fact, educate ourselves to ask all of what AI is doing in our lives and say how to do it safely and in an aligned way?
3: Elon Musk, who co-founded OpenAI and then left, has said it's not what he intended. It is closed-sourced and effectively controlled by Microsoft. How would you
4: respond to that? First of all, OpenAI cares deeply about their mission and doing it in the most safe way and in the most open way. And there's an interesting trade between openness and safety. So that is sort of one of the reasons why they have what they have in terms of their governance architecture. And so therefore, at some level, they have been very, very clear on what principles drive them. Similarly, we have been very, very clear on the principles that drive us around AI safety and responsibility, and we'll stick to them.
3: I have to ask you a question about the economy and whether you're concerned about a prolonged tech bust. I mean, we've seen the collapse of three banks, tighter money, more uncertainty. How are you thinking about this?
4: I think at the highest of levels, I think there was an aberration of maybe a 10-year period of um, low interest rates and everything that came with it, not just in tech, but in the broader economy. And I just think that we're just getting back to normal. Like Mm -hmm. At least the thing that... Perhaps we have to remind ourselves, mostly the world looked like this, which is interest rates were higher than zero. Inflation was perhaps maybe structurally going to be higher, uh, just given everything that's happening with supply chains and the geopolitics. And we all as businesses have to be accountable to how to manage in that environment. And tech is one sector. And so I kind of look at this and say, hey, it's a return to normal as opposed to anything sort of that we need to be worried about as being Mm -hmm. prolonged. In fact, this is the long run. The economies have to sort of be, you know, more real.
3: All right, so this is normal to you.
4: I mean, I think that sometimes we sort of say, you know, the last 10 years can never be sort of the way way forward, on, and it's good. I think it's better to have businesses that are run efficiently.
1: That's Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella speaking with Bloomberg's Emily Chang in the latest episode of The Circuit. Watch the show every Thursday at 10 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and download the podcast wherever you download. Coming up, the conversation continues looking into the future of artificial intelligence. I'm Ed Baxter, and this is Bloomberg. I'm Ed Baxter, and this is Bloomberg Best. Denise Pellegrini has the week off. We continue looking at the artificial intelligence space with Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft. He sat down with Bloomberg's Emily Chang for an episode of her Bloomberg original series, The Circuit. Here, they look at what the future holds for AI. In
3: 1995, Bill Gates sent a memo, calling the internet a tidal wave that would change all the rules. Is AI that big?
4: Yeah, I mean, in fact, I I sort of say the chat GPT, when it first came out, was like when Mosaic first came out, I think in 1993, as the first browser. And so, yes, it does feel like, you know, to the Bill memo in 1995, it does feel like that to me. Uh, so
3: it's as big as the
4: internet. I think it's as big. It's just like in all of these things, right? We in the tech industry are, you know, classic experts at overhyping everything. I hope, but at least that what motivates me is I want to use this technology to truly do what I think at least all of us are in tech for, which is democratizing access to it. So when someone says to me, hey, here is how a farmer in rural India, you know, can use this technology to express a complex thought on how to get a subsidy from a government program and can do that successfully, that gives me a lot of sort of you know hope.
3: I think a lot about my kids and how AI will have something that I don't, which is an infinite amount of time to spend with them and how these chatbots are so friendly and how quickly that could turn into an unhealthy relationship or you know maybe it's nudging them to make a bad decision. A As a parent, Does any part of that scare you?
4: So that's kind of one of the reasons why I think this moving from autopilot to this co-pilot hopefully gives us more control, whether it's as parents or more importantly even as children. Like one of the things that was very cool to see in the launch of GPT-4 was the demo uh, or the launch of Khan Academy stuff. Sal sent me this last night and I was looking at his algebra class, it was so engaging, right? I mean, think about it, like one of the dreams we've always had is can I have a personalized tutor that is engaging, that is actually trying to teach me? We should, of course, be very, very watchful of what happens. But at the same time, I think this generation of bots and this generation of AI probably just go from engagement to more, uh, giving us more agency to learn.
3: What do you think about GPT-4 and like how big a leap it is? It
4: is. It's pretty nonlinear, right? That's the advantage of these models is that they're showing generation to generation that they're getting more efficient at the current tasks, and they're showing emergent capability. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, from GPT-3 to 3.5, it learned to code. Um, So similarly now, it's sort of really like, look at its performance on all those standardized tasks. I mean, that is pretty stunning reasoning. So the thing that I feel this is the closest thing we have to having a reasoning engine that all of us can use to better make sense of the world and right. so you're going back to the kids part like my daughter sent this to me the other day which i think was the most profound which is she's, it's kind of like having a study buddy and a tutor all at the same time she was yeah. using bing chat i think she had a pdf open yeah. and she was querying the pdf and it's kind of like wow yeah. i'm able to ask questions which you know uh, i it's, it's always yeah. not very we're not that, like, you don't go to your tutorials or whatever right, it right, is right. that you need to go. It's so much easier to have this tool available yeah. to make better sense of the world. So, yeah, I think it's, you know, it's a tool that yeah. has its place.
3: And you're just excited, not scared.
4: That's kind of the, the big debate that right now I am more excited. Like, the reason is even if you narrowly look at it from a technology perspective, yeah. this is more empowering and more understandable than... These recommendations on some social media site or what have you, yeah. uh, which are being driven by some other black box engagement algorithm. So, yeah. I'm not. I'm open for pushback and scrutiny and debate on it. Yeah. I don't think this is we are anywhere close to AGI. Yeah. We are not close to any runaway AI problem. Jailbreaks yes right. we can but there's you know we can always learn and put
1: them on safety rails. That's Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella speaking with Bloomberg's Emily Chang in the latest episode of The Circuit. Watch the show every Thursday at 10 p.m. on Bloomberg Television and download the podcast wherever you download. That does it for this episode of Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now.